at least one of the things, we're doing several things when we gather on Sundays, but at least one of the things that happens and that we're aiming to do when we meet together is to reorient the people of God toward the gospel every week. Um, in a real sense, we are preaching the gospel to ourselves every single Sunday, reminding ourselves of the love of God for, for his people and of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on our behalf. And so uh, it's easy to forget that throughout the week. It's easy to sort of let that recede into the background, uh, but we want to remind ourselves of that every single Sunday. Um, and then the implications of that for our lives and the way we live are significant and are profound. Um, and that's what we are attempting to uncover as we study God's word this week uh, and every week. So you can open up to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to be again. I had Dom read Psalm 119. Um, those uh, first couplets of, pass of uh, verses, um, I guess they're more than couplets, but the sections of verses there in Psalm 119, the first two of those, I had him read those because when the psalmist is meditating on God's word and commandments and law, we tend to sort of think, oh, this is like all of the Bible, when in reality, what's happening is he's thinking about the Torah. He's thinking about Exodus and Genesis and Leviticus, and he's thinking about the sacrificial system and, and the case law and the Ten Commandments, and he's meditating on God's word in, in the books of Moses and finding life and richness and health and all of that in and guidance in those passages. And so um, what we're, that's just a reminder to us, as we talked about last week, that what we're studying is not some legal code that is lifeless and um, that has sort of been cast aside for us. It is true that we're no longer under the old covenant, but this covenant still has instruction and principles and life for us in many, many ways. And that's what we're trying to, to uncover as we study it and as we go through the Lord Jesus Christ to our lives today and make application of it. So Exodus 20 is where we're going to be for the second week and one more on this next week. Uh, our family uh, likes to watch uh, certain YouTube channels. It's a thing that we do that the kids get really excited about. And there's one YouTube channel that is of an engineer who used to work for NASA and now, I don't know if this is a step up in, in life and in job, but now he makes YouTube videos. I kind of think it's probably not. Um, but I think he probably makes a little bit more money doing this. So, uh, but he makes these YouTube videos, and he creates these just interesting and awesome uh, projects and things using science and engineering, some of the stuff he learned at NASA. And it, it is, they're just really well done and really interesting. Now... I know nothing, next to nothing, about science and engineering, and the last math class I took was my junior year in high school, so I can sort of still add, occasionally divide, but, you know, I don't know anything about those areas at all. And what, what we love about these videos is this engineer, Mark is his name, always explains the process of what he's doing and the decision making and how he comes to the conclusions that he comes to very simply and clearly. And so there's this whole complex system of analysis and work that goes into making these engineering decisions. And when you hear him explain it, you're like, oh, that makes total and complete sense. 
I, I, how could I not have come to that, you know? And so it, certain people have a skill for breaking down complex ideas into very bite-sized chunks that you can understand and that I can understand, even if you don't have any background or experience in that field. Now, obviously, no one was better at this than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to take something that maybe seems very complex and to state it so clearly and so simply that it was hard not to understand what he was getting at. And there's a great example of this, maybe the best example of this, in Matthew 22. I'm going to put this on the screen here. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but here's what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now this question from the Pharisees did not come out of left field. This wasn't the first time someone had asked this question to try to simplify the Old Testament law, over 600 laws, down into a bite-sized chunk that was understandable and manageable. This question was common among religious leaders at this time. It was a debate that they often had. And they asked Jesus this in order to draw him into the ongoing debate and to test him and hopefully from their perspective, to expose Jesus as, as a fraud of some kind. Now, amazingly enough here, Jesus is able to bring the whole Old Testament law together into these two key commandments. And these two key commandments that he gives us here happen to summarize the two sections of the Ten Commandments, which is what we've been looking at last Sunday, or what we began looking at last Sunday, and we're going to continue this week. Love God and love others, deal justly with others. And so in this passage, with this summary of the law in mind, the summary of the Ten Commandments, we're going to see this. We began looking at this last week, hopefully. Oh, look at that. It's not working. There we go. Let me go back here. Sorry. Three ways that God's law gives life. That's what we're going to be seeing, what we began to see last week, and we're going to continue in this Sunday Three ways that God's law, specifically here in the Ten Commandments, gives life. And God doesn't give these ten words, remember we talked about that, or commandments as an arbitrary legal code. He gives them to Israel in order to bless them, in order to do them good, and so that Israel then can turn around and be a blessing to the nations. And as they do that, they will be fulfilling God's purpose for them and God's promises that he has made through Abraham and the patriarchs to them. And so you can see the first way that God's law gives life there in verses 1 and 2 by revealing God's character to us. Look with me at how God begins this in verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He begins... And this is so important to remember as you think about the Ten Commandments. He begins by reminding them of who he is. He defines himself, uses the name that he gave to Moses once again. I am the Lord your God. 
All that has happened so far in the book of Exodus, everything has been for the purpose of God making himself known. He is revealing his character and his name and who he is to the Israelites and to the Egyptians as well. And he does all of that throughout the book of Exodus and will continue to do that and is doing it here, which is why he begins the Ten Commandments by saying, I am the Lord your God. These commands, these words are going to reveal who he is to them. And one of the main things that he wants them to know about his character is that he is a merciful, redeeming, delivering God. Look again at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so he's connecting these commands or these words back to his deliverance of them from Egypt. And he does this in order to set all of these commands on relational footing. We're to understand these words, these commands from God to Israel in this context as very relational and covenantal. They are given out of family love for the people of Israel. And what these words or these commands are going to do is detail an appropriate response. In light of God's deliverance of you, Israel, from slavery and bringing you to freedom and making a covenant with you and pulling you in to be my, his treasured possession, here is an appropriate response from you. Here is what your ethics and your morality and your life should look like. And these first four words, the first four of the Ten Commandments, specify their response specifically to God. And this is the second way that God's law gives life, by teaching us to love God exclusively. The first word, the first of the Ten Commandments, provides the basis for the rest. And by the way, if you weren't here last week, I'm using the word, word, to describe these Ten Commandments because of, that's the word that's used in verse 1. God spoke all these words. These are much more than simple commands. They are commands, they're prohibitions, but they're revealing God's character and his nature. They're revealing who he is to Israel. And so they are words of revelation. So it's important to understand that as you read this. And so the first word in verse 3 provides the basis for the rest of them, specifically for Words 2 through 4. Look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And the image that we get from this is something that would have been very typical in that day and in that culture. The way people thought of the divine, of deity, is they pictured the multitude of gods that were there as operating in an assembly or in a group. They were all gathered together in a throne room and they ruled the universe together. That's the way everyone pictured the divine as operating. And what God is saying to Israel here is, you cannot think of me as operating that way. There are no gods before me in my presence. God doesn't share his authority, his power, or his glory with anyone. And the implication of that for Israel is that he calls for their exclusive love, their exclusive loyalty. They have entered into a covenant relationship with him. The image of marriage is used throughout the Old Testament to talk about Israel and God 
and how they've been brought into a covenant together. And that's exactly what he's getting at here. Don't think of there being any other gods before me in my presence. You are my treasured possession, and you should treat me with exclusive love and loyalty. And because of that, that leads to the second word or the second command, which is found in verse 4. Israel must not engage in the cultural practice of making graven images or of making idols of wood and stone and then of serving them and thinking that they can connect with the divine through these man-made images. Look with me at the second command in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Again, what you find here is you find Israel situated in a time and a culture where idols were very, very normal. It was expected There was really no other option for communicating or for connecting with deity. We've discussed before, but people during this time believed there were many gods, many, many gods, a pantheon of gods. And in order to gain access to one of those gods, you had to make a material representation of that god. And so you had to make an idol of wood or of stone. And what would happen when you made that idol is that the the belief was that the God that that idol represented would come and would indwell that idol. And so now you had access to that God. But this wasn't just about gaining access to the God. It was actually more than that. When you made an idol, you were thinking that now you could have influence over this God. And here's what I mean by that. The gods were not all powerful in people's mind. They weren't completely sovereign. Since there were many of them, they didn't control everything. They were certainly stronger than human beings were, and they had great power and influence, but they weren't all powerful. And so, because of that, the gods had certain limitations. They needed stuff. They needed help from human beings. And so one of the things, for example, that people believed about gods was that they could not feed themselves. They needed help from humans to feed themselves. And so they needed humans to offer food to the idol, and then the god could eat and have his needs taken care of. And if you gave the god that was represented by your idol the right food, or perform the right ritual when you had that food before the idol, you would be able to coerce that god into bringing rain on your fields or causing your goat to give birth to a a healthy kid. And the point here is that when you made an idol, you were thinking that you could manipulate this god into doing what you wanted. And so worship of the God became a series of tricks in order to get what you were after. The whole thing became about you and what you wanted and your desires and what you imagined you needed. And so the creation of an idol to represent another God or even worse, to represent Yahweh God became an attempt to control and domesticate God. It became an attempt to gain authority and power and to get what I wanted from 
Him. And so to make an image that represented Yahweh God, to, to imagine that you could boil Him down to a stone that was carved or to a piece of wood was to fundamentally misunderstand His nature, who He is, His power. Israel needed to make sure they understood and treated God as if He was the exclusive King. He was in control. He makes exclusive demands of Israel and not the other way around. And so, at the core, idolatry, and and hear this, idolatry of any kind is an attempt to control life and to get security on my own terms. Whether you're worshiping a god of wood, a god of stone, or the god of money, the god of sex, or the god of power, idolatry is an attempt to control life and to get security on my own terms. Later on in Israel's history, you see this in clear ways, when Israel attempted to worship Baal, or Baal, as it's commonly called, they needed their crops to grow. And so they would go to this God, the God of the Canaanites and the Philistines, because they needed their crops to grow, and they would create idols, and they would try to manipulate this in order to get rain. And instead, what they should have done was to simply trust God's purposes and timing and not try to manipulate It's amazing here because Israel had just had this experience of God descending onto Mount Sinai and God's presence being shielded by smoke and clouds so that Israel wouldn't die from seeing him. And so God makes it clear here to act as if this God could be reduced to an image, in particular an image of a cow, which we'll see later on in the book of Exodus. To do that would be to forget who God is and to misunderstand who he is. Now, the real problem for you and I and for Israel with idolatry, and the reason that this command is second and is so important for them, is that idols can never actually come through on what they promise. They make promises. They claim to be able to make life work and to make you satisfied and to make you happy. And they claim to, be, to give you fulfillment and to make your crops grow and to provide for all of your needs, but they just can't do it. And so God is giving this command here to Israel because Israel would have been tempted and they were tempted to invest their hopes and their desires in these idols. And they began to build their lives around these idols, around these false hopes and these false promises. And when you build your life around a false promise, this is what happens. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the people see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. When you build your life on a false God, whenever something else starts to gain the upper hand in your affections and you live for that created thing, whatever it might be, now that worship of that idol begins to shape you and it begins to form you into something very different than what God intended you to be. Let me explain this 
like this, because this is important. God made you, designed you and I to find our hopes, our dreams, our desires, and our affections in him. He made us to live this way with him as our exclusive loyalty. He made you to rest in him, to trust him to provide for all of your needs because he is all that we need. He's made us that way. God alone carries the weight and the glory that can give an image bearer security and worth. Our identity is to be found in him because as his reflections, he is the only one that can carry the weight and the glory and the worth to sustain us and give us flourishing and life and satisfaction. But when you and I turn our desires to some created thing, as Romans 1 talks about, and we put our affections and our identity and our hope in something else, and we become the guy who makes money, and we become the athlete, we become the good dad, whatever that created thing is that we find our purpose and our identity in, then we exchange God's worth and his glory and his weight for something that is thin and that cannot sustain our identity and our hopes. And so when we put our hope in that created thing, it begins to change us and alter us. And the idol begins to create us in its image. And we become something less than human, controlled and driven by our desires. And so, this is not just an arbitrary command here. Because God wants to do good to Israel, because that is his goal, he wants to keep them from pursuing false gods and idols. And I would say he doesn't just want to keep them from it. He is passionate about it. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for, and here's an explanation for why he's so passionate about this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, it's easy to see the word jealous here and think of some junior high dispute where one party is jealous of the other and there's a disagreement because one wants what the other one has. That is not how this word is being used of God here. God's jealousy comes from a settled love and affection for his people. He loves his people. And he wants to do them good. He has redeemed them from slavery. He's brought them into a marriage relationship with him. And he will not have a third party enter into that relationship. He is passionate about protecting it and keeping it. And he's passionate about protecting it and keeping it for the good of his people. And when his people, as they will do in the Old Testament, go after idols and prove their hatred for God and their rebellion against him by serving false gods, he will punish them. Now let's make sure we understand verse 5 correctly. Look again at it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. God is not saying here that if a 
man sins and worships idols, that God is going to arbitrarily punish his grandchild or his great-grandchild. That's not what he's describing here. The great-grandchild is walking in righteousness and pursuing God, and oh, he gets punished because of what his grandfather did. Here's what God's saying. Our sinful tendencies, our dispositions, do tend to get passed on to our children and our grandchildren. They, get, they tend to get passed on from one generation to the next. And God is saying here that he's not going to excuse the worship of idols simply because the child or the grandchild says, well, I got it from my parents. God will be faithful and consistent to punish when there is rebellion against him, even if that rebellion is intergenerational and it continues on. On the same note, and amazingly enough, God is so patient and so kind that his grace will never run out. The sin may continue for three or four generations, but look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of generations is the implication here, of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's love is so patient and so big and so broad that it reaches down through time to many, many people. And he waits before bringing punishment. And he gives opportunity and he gives grace. And his grace extends down through the ages. Let's move on to the third word here, which is found in verse 7. Look there. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain vain. Now, my guess here is that when most of us hear these words, we think of a particular misuse of God's name. We think of saying God or Jesus almost like an expletive. That would be the main way we think of taking the Lord's name in vain. And I would say this prohibition certainly encompasses that. Don't do that. But it's much bigger than that. You can't limit it to just using verbally Jesus' name like you would use an expletive when you're angry. Now keep in mind here, when it talks about the name of the Lord, it's talking about his character. It's all that he is. It's his renown. It's his reputation. It's his glory. The name of the Lord. So to take God's name in vain here is to misuse his name. It's to treat his character as less than it is. Here's what I would say. It's to misrepresent God by the way you talk about him or by the way you live and represent him day in and day out. Israel, remember, was, was God's treasured possession. They were his covenant people. Their whole purpose was to represent him before the nations, to mediate his holiness and his blessing and his covenant to the peoples. And so Israel is to rightly represent God. They are to put his character on display by the way that they live. And so to take God's name in vain is to to make God out to be different than he is. It's to make people think God is like this, when in reality, he has clearly revealed himself as being like this. 
And this sin, the third commandment, or third word here, becomes one of the chief sins of Israel in the Old Testament. God's name, his character was defamed. He was thought less of by the nations because of the way Israel lived, the way they acted. Listen to Ezekiel 36. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. And so they're misrepresenting God. God's name is being profaned because of the way Israel lives. Now, how might you and I do this today? Let's jump ahead and think about our situation and our circumstances. Well, the New Testament is quite clear in something in a passage like Ephesians 4.1 that you and I are to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We are to represent God appropriately by the way we live, by our actions, and to put him on display. First Peter talks about us being God's special people and treasured possession. And so we represent him. And our lives can give the wrong impression about God by the way that we live. There's also, beyond just your actions and your pattern of living, there's also a way of talking about God that misuses his name in order to get what I want. So you might hear a person say something like this, God told me or led me to do this, or the Spirit led me to say that. When I was a college pastor in Virginia, before we moved to Michigan, there was this time where we were trying to decide a location to have a retreat in the fall when all the students would come back to school. And I, I went out to look at this Christian campground in the mountains to see if this would be a, a good site to have the retreat at. And so the guy that owned the site uh, gave me a tour of it, and we walked through it. And it was pretty clear as we were walking through it that this wasn't going to work for our size group. But I talked with him and got his phone number, and I called him back the next day or a couple days later, whenever it was, and I told him, hey, listen, thanks for giving me the tour, but, you know, it's just not going to work for us. There's not a big enough room for us all to meet in, and uh, it's just not going to work for us. And he was shocked, and he told me over the phone, well, I prayed about this, and God told me that you are going to be putting a deposit down <laughs> and using this sight that this was going to work for your group. And I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but I hope I said something like, well, he didn't tell me that. I'm not in on that conversation. It didn't work very well. And here's the point. You and I have to be very careful when speaking on behalf of God when claiming God's authority or the Spirit's authority for causing someone else to do something or giving justification for something that we want to do that's probably just driven by our desires and our want to. God guides us and speaks and uses his authority in our lives through what? Through his word. 
This is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. God uses his word to guide us and direct us. And as we understand his word and as we study his word, we are expected to use wisdom then to apply his word to life circumstances. And we misrepresent the name of God when we take up his name and use it in ways that wrongly represent him and put him on display. Finally, that's the third word, verse 7, the fourth. And this closes out the last group of words that have to do with the exclusive love and loyalty that we have to God. The fourth commandment is regarding the Sabbath. Let me read this to you in verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this particular command is the only one of the ten that isn't picked up in the New Testament and applied specifically to the church in the same sort of way. And there's a reason for that. This command, this practice, this ritual, ritual is not a bad thing. It's something you do over and over again for a particular purpose. But this ritual, the practice of the Sabbath, was given to Israel specifically as a sign of the Sinai covenant here. And so this practice was to be a sign of the covenant and remind them of this covenant that God was making with them. Look at this passage in Exodus 31. It's a lot on the screen there, but I'll read it to you. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that, the Lord, that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, couldn't be clearer there, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so this is a sign of this covenant, just like circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant with the people of Israel, this is a sign of the Sinai covenant with the people of Israel. It's given to them. And as a sign when they practiced this every seven days, every week, it was to remind Israel and reorient them to their covenant relationship with God. Now, I'll show you in just a minute how the Sabbath principles are picked up by the New Testament and applied to the church 
through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. It goes through him and to us. And so I'll show you that in a minute. But first of all, let's talk about what the Sabbath would have meant and what it would have, what it would have taught Israel. You can see in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, in verse 11, that the Sabbath is rooted in the creation week. But apparently, even though this pattern was set in the creation week, apparently Israel had not been practicing this, and they weren't really even aware that they were supposed to be practicing this, and God was not holding them to this at all until we get to the book of Exodus. It's rooted in God's creation activity, but there's no indication that Israel was responsible to keep this. Now, I want you to think about Israel's work schedule in Egypt for a second. All right, imagine their work schedule in Egypt, and now they're coming out and receiving this command, because I think it helps you to understand exactly how this does good to Israel. In Egypt, they would not have worked six days and rested one. They were enslaved. Instead, they would have worked all the time. They would have been required to work seven days a week, and they would have worked long hours for the Egyptians. And God, when he created the world, set apart the Sabbath day as a day of rest to show specifically that creation had reached its climax and goal with God resting. So everything in creation builds toward and points to the Sabbath day when God rests. It's like everything is complete and has reached its purpose, and we'll explain that a little more in a second. And so Israel here was to imitate that pattern as they're in covenant with God, and it would, to sh it would show in Israel's work lives that their work was to culminate and lead toward the enjoyment of creation and rest and worship of God and enjoyment in Him for providing for their needs. So their lives were to reach their climax and their pinnacle on this day as they were enjoying the fruit of their labors, the goodness of God, and resting in fellowship with Him. Now, there can be a temptation, both for Israel and for us, to think and to live as if our lives, our food, our clothing, our shelter came to us because we worked really hard and provided for them. I, mean, I work two jobs, and I'm able to make this happen, and I'm able to... It's a temptation to think that... I don't really work two jobs, I'm just saying. It's a temptation to think that in our lives, that we are responsible to make these things happen and that our work is what ultimately provides for us. But here for Israel, the Sabbath would have taught them that all of these things come to them because God provides. All goodness is a result of God's leadership, authority, and provision. And he's so good that he provides for them to the point where they're not allowed to work one day a week and he still provides for them. That one day a week is given to them to simply enjoy the gifts of creation and to enjoy the covenant and the relationship that he has given to them. Now, of course, for you and I, we do not rigorously keep the Sabbath as Israel did because Christ has come and we're not a part of the old covenant as Israel was. 
But Christ has shown us and has fulfilled this and shown us the true purpose and goal of the Sabbath through his work. Here's what I mean by that. Think about the structure of creation and think about what Sabbath taught Israel. God worked in creation and created and made everything, and the goal of creation, the climax of creation, was to be found in Him. He's the pinnacle. Rest in Him and enjoyment of Him is the end goal of creation. And it was the enjoyment of Him and His gifts that were there for Israel's good, and they were to structure their lives this way. That's why the creation account ends at the beginning of chapter 2 with the Sabbath. Because this is what we're all headed toward and aiming for and living for. Rest in God. Enjoyment of the gifts that He has given and of Him. The book of Hebrews actually talks about Israel's Sabbath, their rest, and says that there's still a future Sabbath and a future rest for the people of God. It's coming. It's baked into creation. The climax and the goal of everything, of all the work that God has done, is for us to enjoy His gifts and enjoy Him forever. That's what we're aiming for. And that gift of eternal Sabbath, rest in Him, the final climax, comes to us through a true and better Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate goal. The time when we will enjoy God's presence and the fruits of His creation in His rest. Listen to Hebrews 4. So then, after discussing Israel's Sabbath and their rest and how they they tried to achieve it and they couldn't, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so the author of Hebrews presents this future rest in this section as sort of up in the air for many, many people. There remains a Sabbath rest, but many, many people will not enter that rest because of their sin. The next verses. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Israel missed out on it because of their sin, because of their twisted hearts, because of their rebellion. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This verse that we often pull out of context is a verse of judgment. The word of God reveals our sin and brings judgment. And no, verse 13, creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That does not sound very promising that you and I are going to be able to enter that Sabbath rest, does it? It sounds like there's a Sabbath rest that is out there enjoying the climax of creation and the goodness of God in fellowship with him. But man, I'm sinful. And I see my sinfulness every time I open God's word. It discerns the thoughts and intents of my heart. At least it should. And we're all exposed to God's all-knowing, all-gazing eye. And he sees our sin. And we strive to enter that rest, but we're just not capable. And in God's goodness, here are the next verses in Hebrews 4. Since then, 
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is in him. He's the high priest that leads us to enjoy that Sabbath rest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the end goal. We are left to our own devices to try and make it ourselves and our own sufficiency. We are overcome by God's judgment for sin. We're exposed to the very core of our being. And yet, God has provided a true and better Moses, the great high priest who has gone ahead of us and who has entered into the throne room of God. And that time of future Sabbath rest can be ours through his work through our confession of his work, and through our faith and our confidence in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your word. We thank you for this hope that we have. And we thank you for the goodness that you have done to us through giving us your word. We are exposed by it, and yet we have confidence in you because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And so help us to strive to enter that Sabbath rest, to expose our hearts to the word of God week in and week out, and yet to come to you fully knowing that our sins have been paid for, that we are forgiven, and that we do have true satisfaction and true rest in you. We thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray.